Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 101 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, will the whole world be surprised at the coming of Jesus, or will it be possible to know his coming is soon? So happy Wednesday, friends. Today marks three weeks of sheltering in place for those of us in Central California, and it is for me a new personal record for sheltering in place, staying home and social distancing, uh, beating my previous record of five days when I had the flu in fifth grade, and I don't know, about two weeks or so when my mom's car was hit by a moving van when I was eight or so and broke lots of pieces of me. Are you going crazy yet? I sort of see some signs that my family is going crazy, so I'm planning on building a temporary shelter respite place in the laundry room for me and the boy because he's the only other one that seems sort of uh, mostly still sane. So I want to invite you to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. If you've got questions or comments or like a Bible question you want me to cover on the show, I'd love to hear from you there. Just leave it as a comment on this episode or any episode. I'll pick up on them. BibleReadingPodcast.com. I also invite you, as often do, to share the show with your friends on social media, spread the word, get more people listening to the Word of God and sharing it. That's my goal, at least. Today, Today's Bible readings include Leviticus 11 and 12, Psalms 13 and 14, Proverbs 26, and 1 Thessalonians 5. And yeah, we're following the Robert Murray McShane Bible plan, uh, and he kind of went crazy on us today. That's a lot of chapters. Our big Bible question of the day is... Will college football happen this year? I'm going to go live now to my special guest, Ryan Rossillo, for his take on that. Oh, uh, wait, my bad. That's actually a topic for a different show. Our actual big Bible question is, will it be possible for Christians to know that the coming of Jesus is soon? Well, what do you think? Don't guess yet. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and then come back and we'll discuss it, and then we will read our other 50 or so Bible chapters for the day. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you're already doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Now now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the pertinent part of First Thessalonians is that they're at the very beginning, and it helps us sort of answer the question. He says in verse 2, you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. But then he says in verse 4, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. Now, if you can see the artwork for the show, either at the blog, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and sometimes it'll show up actually in your podcast reader, depending on the one you have, you're going to see... Uh, a picture of my podcast recording studio setup, which is my office. It's got uh, a microphone with a windscreen on it and a boom arm and my camera and my monitor behind it with a thousand tabs open, even though Ben has told me a great program I can use to get my tabs under control. You will see that I have a CVS uh, prescription bottle that acts as a spacer on my boom arm. But most importantly, I'm holding up a book called 1994 Question Mark, and it is one of my great theological treasures. You can't tell from the picture, but the book I'm holding up is 551 pages long, and it's well-researched. I don't know, maybe, I guess it's well-researched. It's long, I guess. by And it's by a guy who was a Bible teacher and a radio host named Harold Camping. The book was written in 1992, the year that Alabama won the national championship, and makes the very bold claim that Jesus will return in 1994. In fact, the back of the book contains this very uh, clear and accurate statement. Whether we like it or not, the end of history is almost upon us. Abundant Bible information focuses on 1994 as the likely end of the world. This information should be declared to the world because it severely and eternally impacts each and every individual of the more than 5.5 billion of the earth. Well, we've kind of grown since then. I'll be honest with you, I haven't read the book. I've barely opened it. I bought it for a quarter at a trustful Alabama library cell as an illustration of the fact that people have been trying to predict the exact date of the second coming for hundreds of and hundreds of years, and they have thus far struck out every time. Tonight, for the first time, I actually read a few paragraphs in this book, and I gotta tell you, my mind is absolutely blown. Somehow, some way, Brother Camping calculates that the date the world began was 11,013 B.C. Now, if you're wondering how in the world he came up with that calculation, honestly, I don't have the foggiest idea because I just turned to page 442 and started reading. I don't have time to read a whole 550-page book of nonsense. I've got five kids, a church to pastor, and uh, a daily Bible podcast to do. Um, I don't have time to read this whole book. It's massive. 
But, according to Mr. Camping, the world began in 11,013 B.C. And here is how, according to Camping, we get to the return of Jesus in 1994. This is his quote. He says, Especially interesting is Jacob's age when he came under the care and protection of Joseph. When asked of Pharaoh his age, he answered in Genesis 47.9, quote, Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The years of the years, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are an hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. From this verse, Camping makes the following conclusion, quote, we can't help but see the parallel between this account and the pilgrimage of believers in this world. When do we escape the evil days of this earth? In one sense, we escape them when we become saved, but the final escape is the end of the world. We see again how 13,000 years, or the year 1988, stands out as the end of the world. Now, <laughs> This is the sort of reasoning you get in books of this ilk, books that attempt to pin down the exact date of the return of Jesus. I have no idea where we get the date of 11,013 BC for the creation of the world and the creation of Adam, and how we get 13,000 years from 130 years, which is not even probably how old Jacob was when he died. He lived a little bit past this. How we get that? Camping doesn't tell us. How we multiply it by a 100 to get to 13,000? Camping doesn't tell us. Now, he does attempt to explain how the end of the world isn't going to happen in 1988. I did say the book was written in 1992. So 1988, mathematically speaking, if you're challenged, was four years before 1992. And camping... As, you know, dense as he was, he did realize Jesus hadn't come back in 1988, but what he said was, the Great Tribulation began in 1988. And i got to tell you people, I am an old man and full of years. 1988 is the year I turned 16, and uh, I don't know that it was the greatest year in the history of the world. I did wreck my brand new car that I got for my birthday, which was... Just a fabulous car, and I got a piece of crap car to replace it. Um, but I wouldn't st- think that that qualifies as great tribulation level stuff. In fact, it really was a pretty decent year. If that's as bad as, if 1988 is as bad as the great tribulation gets, I honestly think most of us are going to do pretty well through that. But of course, that wasn't the beginning of the Great Tribulation. It wasn't anything. Jesus didn't come back in 1994. That book was just 551 pages of garbage. Now, it's not just camping that's done that. The Jehovah's Witnesses predicted the Second Coming and other important Bible prophecy events would happen in 1878, oops, 1881, our bad, 1914, uh, 1918, 1925, and they continue to do garbage like that. And every time they do, they go back and retcon their prediction to sort of make it fit in and say, oh, you know, well, Jesus didn't come back in 1878, but this significant spiritual thing did happen. In similar form, 
Mr. Camping himself recalculated his dates, and he came up with a, quote, beyond a shadow of a doubt, return of Jesus that would happen on May 21st, 2011. Spoiler alert again, Jesus did not come back in May of 2011, the 21st, or any other days. When that failed, he again moved the date forward to October 21st, 2011. But you know what? Good news. Just a few days before October 21st, I think he realized something. He sort of woke up and he admitted he did not know when Jesus was going to come back. And when October 21st came and went, he very wisely and very humbly repented of his silliness. He shared the Matthew 24, 36 truth that no man knows the day or the hour of the return of Jesus. And he retreated and began to just study the Bible to know what it taught and how to live and how who Jesus was in the gospel and that sort of thing. And I just like to say, Good job, Mr. Camping, who entered into eternity in 2013. You messed up for a while there, all of us do, but you got there eventually in the grace of God. I'm glad you did. The problem with trying to discern the exact date of the return of Jesus is what Jesus himself claimed about his second coming again in Matthew 24. He said, the angels in heaven don't know the date. He said, I don't even know the date. The Son of God didn't know the date of his return. But only, only, only God the Father knew the date of that, of his return. And I think that means that the timing of the return of Jesus is not encoded or hidden somewhere, somehow in the Bible. You're not going to be able to dig it out because it's not hidden in there. It's not in there. Not secretly, not encoded, not in a Bible code, nothing. It's not in there. If Jesus didn't know it, it's not in the Bible. Literally, According to Jesus, at the time when the Bible was written, only the Father knew the date. Now, that said in belief, we do have this curious thing here in 1 Thessalonians uh, where Paul says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. Jesus said himself, he said, hey, I'm going to return like a thief in the night in a way that will surprise the world. But according to Paul, those believers who aren't in the dark won't be surprised by the return of Jesus. Instead, they will be ready. So is this a contradiction, as some people have seen, between the teaching of Paul and the teaching of Jesus? Of course it isn't, not even in the slightest. In fact, Jesus himself told and taught the disciples and the followers of the disciples, like you and me, how to be ready for his return so it wouldn't surprise us like a thief. For instance, Luke 12, we've already read this before and discussed it, but let's do it again because it's so, so crucial. Luke 12, 35 through 40, Jesus says this, be ready for service and have your light lamps lit. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then he'll come and serve them. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also... Be ready, because the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. 
So, the second coming should not hit Bible-believing, blood-bought followers of Jesus by surprise. Why not? Because they somehow figured out the hour from stacking up the letters of the book of Mark backwards and Gematria and all of that? No, because no matter what hour it is or date or time when Jesus comes back, Followers of Jesus who obey him, they're living and acting like the master could return at any, any, any moment. Think of it like this. You work in an office, for instance, and the boss is away. If everybody is diligently working while the boss is away, then his return to the office won't shake anybody up in the least. And it certainly won't surprise anybody or alarm anybody, least of all the boss, because all of the workers are diligently and alertly doing what they're supposed to do. Suppose, however, that the workers goof off. They play games on their phones, make personal calls, bruise social media, and they get a game of poker going in the break room, whatever. When the boss returns then, they will be surprised. He's going to catch them off guard, exactly like a sleeping homeowner of a house that a cat burglar breaks in. You're not surprised by such a thing like a burglar or the boss coming back, if you're waiting and watching alertly and you're busy doing what you're supposed to be doing, but it catches you way off guard if you're sleeping or gooping off. Now, the antidote to being surprised is not knowing the exact time of the boss's return, but knowing that he could return it literally any second and doing exactly what he commanded you to do while he was gone. I think that's the primary reason here why Paul is telling believers that the coming of Jesus should not catch them like a thief in the night, because they're awake and alert. That said, I do think there might be a secondary sense here too. Maybe. Probably. Can I say probably? I think probably. The fact is that Jesus describes in Matthew 24, Luke 22, and many other places, and Paul describes in this passage and several others, and other Old and New Testament books like Revelation and several other places, do give us some hints about how things are going to look in the earth around the time of the return of Jesus. Now, this information on the second coming is somewhat vague, and I believe purposely so. If it wasn't like vague like that, then we believers, being human, honestly, we would procrastinate on the Great Commission and wait until the last minute, because that's what humans do. And it's clear that although Jesus didn't know the exact date of his return, he did seem to know that the second coming would not be immediate, that it would be a long time coming. You can tell that from passages like Matthew 25, 19, Matthew 24, 48. There's some other hints in there too. Thus, he sent the believers out with urgency, knowing it might be a while, knowing the mission might take hundreds, couple of thousand, who knows, years, the Great Commission mission, and we still have that same urgency because brothers and sisters, we haven't fulfilled the mission. The Great Commission hasn't been fulfilled yet. Our mission is to be serving the king right now and his kingdom when he returns, whenever that will be. Will we know his arrival is getting near? I think the answer is maybe. And, and maybe the positive side of maybe. Maybe sort of. How about that? Some true believers from all centuries since this the resurrection of Jesus, have believed they lived in the time of Jesus' return, and thus far they've every one of them been wrong. That means the signs of Jesus' coming could be misinterpreted by faulty humans. 
That said, I believe that the nearer we get to his return, the clearer the events unfolding on earth will match the events foretold in Scripture. The principle I'm saying is, the nearer we get, the clearer it will be. I think it's telling that Jesus in Luke 12 said his disciples would not know the hour. I take that to mean that we will not know the exact date, but that the body of Christ on earth at the time of his return will not be surprised like a thief in the night. Even though Jesus will come like a thief in the night, we won't be surprised because we're awake and alert. Now, I think that for two reasons. Number one, we're going to be awake and alert, like I said, watching and crying out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But also, number two, the body of Christ on earth at that time will begin to see a more closely matched set of circumstances and events unfolding that unmistakably, or at least in a clearer and clearer way, matches biblical prophecy. That generation won't know the day or the hour either, but I suspect that they will have a collective sense that it is going to happen soon. And that's my best take biblically on how the events of the second coming will happen. And I will tell you more than ever, I have been praying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, because this pandemic we're going through has been tough on all of us. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Tell the Israelites you may, you may eat all these kinds of land animals, you may eat any animal with divided hooves and that chews the cud, but among the ones that chew the cud or have divided hooves, you are not to eat these. Camels, though they chew the cud, do not have divided hooves, they are unclean for you. Hyraxes, though they chew the cud, do not have hooves, they are unclean for you. Hares, though they chew the cud, do not have hooves, they are unclean for you. Pigs, though they have divided hooves, do not chew the cud. They are unclean for you. Do not eat any of their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. This is what you may eat from all that is in the water. You may eat everything in the water that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or streams, but these are to be abhorrent to you. Everything in the seas or streams that does not have fins and scales among all the swarming things and all other living creatures in the water. They are to remain abhorrent to you. You must not eat any of their meat, and you must abhor their carcasses. Everything in the water does not have fin that does not have fins and scales will be abhorrent to you. You are to abhor these birds. They must not be eaten because they are abhorrent. Eagles, bearded vultures, Egyptian vultures, kites, any kind of falcon, any kind of raven, ostriches, short-eared owls, gulls, any kind of hawk, little owls, cormorants, long-eared owls, barn owls, eagle owls, osprey, storks, any kind of heron, hoopoes, and bats. Hmm, that's good advice. All winged insects that walk on all fours are to be abhorrent to you. But you may eat these kinds of all the winged insects that walk on all fours. Those that have jointed legs above their feet for hopping on the ground. You may eat these. Any kind of locust, katydid, cricket, and grasshopper. All other winged insects that have four feet are to be abhorrent to you. These will make you unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean until evening, and whoever carries any of their carcasses is to wash his clothes and will be unclean until evening. All animals that have hooves but do not have a divided hoof and do not chew the cud are unclean for you. Whoever touches them becomes unclean. All the four-footed animals that walk on their paws are unclean for you. 
Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean until evening, and anyone who carries their carcasses is to wash his clothes and will be unclean until evening. They are unclean for you. These creatures that swarm on the ground are unclean for you. Weasels, mice, any kind of large lizard, geckos, monitor lizards, common lizards, skinks, and chameleons. These are unclean for you among all the swarming creatures. Whoever touches them when they are dead will be unclean until evening. When any of them dies and falls on anything, it becomes unclean. Any item of wood, clothing, leather, sackcloth, or any implement used for work. It is to be rinsed with water and will remain unclean until evening. Then it will be clean. If any of them falls into any clay pot, everything in it will become unclean and you are to break it. Any edible food coming into contact with that, unclean water will become unclean and any drinkable liquid in any container will become unclean. Anything one of their carcasses falls on will become unclean. If it is an oven or stove, it is to be smashed. It is unclean and will remain unclean for you. A spring or cistern containing water will remain unclean, but someone who touches a carcass in it will become unclean. If one of their carcasses falls on any seed that is to be sown, it is clean, but if the water has been put on the seed and one of their carcasses falls on it, it is unclean for you. If one of the animals that you use for food dies, anyone who touches its carcass will be unclean until evening. Anyone who eats some of its carcass is to wash his clothes and will be unclean until evening. Anyone who carries its carcass must wash his clothes and will be unclean until evening. All the creatures that swarm on the earth are abhorrent. They must not be eaten. Do not eat any of the creatures that swarm on the earth, anything that moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet, for they are abhorrent. Do not become contaminated by any creature that swarms. Do not become unclean or defiled by them, for I am the Lord your God. So you must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not defile yourselves by any swarming creature that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, so you must be holy because I am holy. This is the law concerning animals, birds, all living creatures that move in the water, and all creatures that swarm on the ground in order to distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the animals that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites, when a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a male child, she will be unclean seven days, as she is during the days of her menstrual impurity. The flesh of his foreskin must be circumcised on the eighth day. She will continue in purification from her bleeding for 33 days. She must not touch any holy thing or go into the sanctuary until completing her days of purification. But if she gives birth to a female child, she will be unclean for two weeks as she is during her menstrual impurity. She will continue in purification from her bleeding for 66 days. When her days of purification are complete, whether for a son or daughter, She is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old male lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He will present them before the Lord and make atonement on her behalf. She will be clean from her discharge of blood. This is the law for a woman giving birth, whether to a male or female. But if she doesn't have sufficient means for a sheep, she may take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. Then the priest will make atonement on her behalf, and she will be clean. Psalm chapter 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? 
agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me an answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your faithful voice. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord. Then they will be filled with dread. For God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 1. Like snow in summer and rain at harvest, honor is inappropriate for a fool. Like a flitting sparrow or a fluttering swallow, an undeserved curse goes nowhere. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the backs of fools. Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become wise in his own eyes. The one who sends a message by a fool's hand cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. A proverb in the mouth of a fool is like lame legs that hang limp. Giving honor to a fool is like a binding a stone in a sling. A proverb in the mouth of a fool is like a stick with thorns brandished by the hand of a drunkard. The one who hires a fool or who hires those passing by is like an archer who wounds everyone. As a dog returns to its vomit, so also a fool repeats his foolishness. Do you see a person who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The slacker says there is a lion in the road, a lion in the public square. A door turns on its hinges and a slacker on his bed. The slacker buries his hand in the bowl. He's too weary to bring it to his mouth. In his own eyes, a slacker is wiser than seven who can answer sensibly. A person who is passing by and meddles in a quarrel that's not his is like one who grabs a dog by the ears. Like a madman who throws flaming darts and deadly arrows... So is the person who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Without wood, fire goes out. Without a gossip, conflict dies down. As charcoal for embers and wood for fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. A gossip's word are like choice food that goes down to one's innermost being. Smooth lips with an evil heart are like glaze on an earthen vessel. A hateful person disguises himself with his speech and harbors deceit within. When he speaks graciously, don't believe him, for there are seven detestable things in his heart. Though his hatred is concealed by deception, his evil will be revealed in the assembly. The one who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever rolls a stone, it will come back on him." A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth causes ruin. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, may the word of God build you up and bless you and edify you. In the mighty name of Jesus, good day to you and Godspeed.